This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hi and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks so much for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. The reality of humanity is eventually we will come into trials and suffering, whether we are close to God or not. Today we're continuing a message from Pastor Jeff on suffering and healing. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walked into the fiery furnace, God didn't save them from the experience, but he walked it with them. The angel of the Lord was with them. This is the second part of this message. Here's Pastor Jeff to finish it from Daniel chapter three. And so in Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord comes into the burning bush. And as it burns, we're told the angel of the Lord is there. But then Moses gets near it. And suddenly, the voice is described as the voice of the Lord. So which is it? Is it the Lord or the angel of the Lord? In Joshua 5, Joshua goes out to investigate Jericho the night before the big battle. And he suddenly sees this towering man in full armor standing before him. And he goes before him and he asks, are you for us or for them? And do you remember this intimidating figure says, no, no. Proving that multiple choice has been around for over 2,000 years. And that D, none of the above, has always been around. It's always been part of the answer. Because he says, no, I'm not for you. I'm not against you. I am the commander of the Lord's host. Okay, so you're Michael or Gabriel. You're an angel of the Lord. But then the angel or the warrior says, take off your shoes, man. You're on holy ground. Hit the deck. You're in the presence of the Lord. Now, hold, wait a minute. Whenever somebody tries to worship an angel in the Bible, they are immediately told, yo, don't do that, dude. I'm a created being just like you. Get up. You'll get us both killed. Worship is reserved for God and God alone. But this angel who keeps showing up, that's referred to as the angel of the Lord, talks as if, takes worship as if he's God. So who is this? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. He just says it looks like a son of the gods. looks like something supernatural. But you and I know, right? We know. Who is from the Lord, but not the Lord, yet is the Lord at the same time? Who is that? Let me help you in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, the Word. The word was with God. Well, I thought it was. No, it's with God. No, wait a minute. And the word was God. Well, which is it? And he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So who is this? It's the pre-incarnate son of God. Jesus did not come into existence in the manger. 
He's part of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it appears, it looks like God just said, you know, let's have some fun. Let's send you down in other forms before you go to the baby in the manger. Jesus is not merely a son of the gods. He is the son of God who will one day be born in a manger and will take away the sins of the world. One God, one Savior for all who call on his name, right? Do you see what's happening? We have the ultimate answer to the question of pain and suffering. And do you know who understands what's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar. He understands that this entire thing has been a contest. Verse uh, 29, therefore I decree that all people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Have you noticed that Nebuchadnezzar loves piles of rubble? He, oh, you better do what I say. I'll turn you into a pile of rubble. And then I'll go over to your house and I'll turn it into a pile. He does this all the time. He loves this piles of rubble thing. And then he says, for no God can save in this way. In what way? He gets it. When people say to me, Pastor Jeff, I, I want to believe in your God, but I can't. I can't believe in Christianity because the furnaces and sufferings of the world, I can't harmonize the two. And I usually say, okay, but the furnaces are going to come into everyone's life in some form or another. Every single one of us, sooner or later, you're going to go into the furnace. And you can live your entire life as a furnace avoider, but sooner or later, the heat's going to come. And part of my frustration of doing ministry for so long down in the South Pacific and Australia, New Zealand, is there's a type of Pentecostalism in that part of the world that says, it is never God's will for you to face a furnace. And I'm thinking, dude, are we reading the same Bible? Have you heard of Paul? Have you heard of Paul? Prison, shipwrecked, beaten, tortured. I'm sure there were times he was sitting in prison writing and he was saying, God, you know, I could be of a lot more use if I was outside these prison walls. You heard, you heard of Jesus? Good guy. Suffered a lot. Daniel, the lion's den. Joseph in prison. Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. The furnaces are coming. And the real question, what kind of worldview will you take with you? What kind of God will go objective now? Not the God that you feel exists. The God that truly exists. What God will you take with you into the furnace? And what God will go with you into the furnaces of your life? Because they're coming. And do you not think it matters? My friend, Mike Masterson, I've talked a lot about him. We've had a great relationship for a long time. His wife, Roberta, she's in the furnace. Three or four months ago, she was told that cancer, she is riddled with cancer. I went down to the hospital to pray with her before she went in for, I think it was like a nine-hour surgery. They removed one-third. They basically, she had a total hysterectomy and removed one-third of most of her organs that she could do without. I mean, this is major surgery. Now, what do you think would have happened had I gone down to the hospital and knelt beside Roberta's bed before she went in for the surgery and said, Roberta, don't worry. This is all because of a sin you committed in a previous life. See, when these young people tell me, well, I'm, I'm into Eastern mysticism and Buddhism, I want to say, dude, you don't even know what it believes. You just found something that sounds cool. You got no idea what worldview you're taking with you into the furnace. Or how about if I say to Roberta, Roberta, all this pain inside, it's just an illusion. If there is no God, then my furnaces are meaningless. Bad luck, wrong place, wrong time. If I'm into most of the religions of the world, then something I did in my previous life now, therefore I'm paying for. But here's the clincher. 
The problem is, even when you move out of the Eastern mysticism, the mystical side, and you move into Western thought, you move into a thousand other subjective ways that you view God. And the God you take into your furnace is a subjective God. Here's what I mean by that. Do platitudes help you when you're suffering? Somebody says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I want to kill them. <laughs> Pain is weakness leaving the body. But then you lose a child, a marriage, a parent. You're told you have cancer and you only have a short time to live and your world starts to completely fall apart. Can I just be honest with you? What you feel about God makes no difference whatsoever if it's not based on objective truth. And the problem is everybody's got their feelings about, well, I think God is like this. Well, good for you. But if you're wrong, it's not going to help you in the middle of your furnace. Jesus is the only one who walks objectively into the furnace. And that's why King Nebuchadnezzar says, no other God can save this way. Jesus is the only one who walks objectively into the furnace. Think about this. How many different ways can you think of how God could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, come on. There's so many different ways. He could have just thrown a huge heavenly ice bucket on the furnace before they ever went in. He could have just, with the breath of God, blown out the fire in the furnace. He could have uh, decided that anybody who touches Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will smite. Right? Can, wouldn't you like to be that kind of person? Hey, don't touch, get your hands off me, man. Don't, don't put your hands on me. God will smite thee. <laughs> wouldn't that be cool to know if you touch me, man, God's going to smite you. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar already believes in Daniel's ability to accurately interpret his dreams based on what happened in chapter 2. So why doesn't God just send Nebuchadnezzar a dream? And in the dream, Daniel interprets it and basically he tells the king, if you do anything bad to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's the end of you. Why, do the, why decide that you're going to save them by walking around in the furnace with them? And the reason is, there is this common chord that goes through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible's trying to tell you what God is truly like and how he works. It's trying to give you objective truth concerning God. Now stay with me. We're taking pieces and putting them together, but if you'll just hang on. This imagery of a fiery furnace is all the way through the New Testament as well. And Jesus uses it, for instance, in Matthew 13. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fiery furnace represents, folks, 99.9% .9 of the pain and suffering in our world is a result of what we do to each other, right? Folks, our food is killing us. Our food is literally killing us because the powers that be are getting wealthy by putting into food that what will preserve it to make it last longer so that you and I can pay the money to purchase it. And those things are killing us. What we do to each other, the way we treat each other for power of money. And so Jesus says one day, everything's going to be brought to light. And all the wickedness and all the cavalier attitude toward righteousness 
And all the people that decide that I'm going to choose my narcissistic kingdom over God's, he says, I'm going to take all of that in this erroneous world, and I'm going to throw it into a fiery furnace. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, looked at an image of Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood, and he asked the question, why was Jesus sweating? And he came up with this answer, because Jesus was about to be sent into the fiery furnace and the door was open. Jesus was looking into the furnace he was about to go into. And it's the furnace of the punishment you and I deserve. It's because of what we do to each other. It's the sin in all of our lives. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. But it wreaks havoc on humanity. And the Bible constantly tries to give us a God who does not rescue us by pulling us out, but instead goes in on our behalf. Jesus Christ is the only God who goes objectively into the ultimate furnace. And that answers the question of pain and suffering. You say, but Pastor Jeff, you lost me. How? Let me help you understand, and we'll pull it together. There's a professor of philosophy at the University of Yale, and he had a 25-year-old son that died in a mountain climbing accident, and he he wrote a book. It actually became famous. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Lament for a Son. So here's this philosopher who understands the struggle of philosophy. How can you believe in a loving and good God with all these types of things happening in the world? He loses his son to a tragic accident. And he starts to write words like this. God must be love. That's why he suffers. To love our suffering world is to suffer. God suffers for the world so much that he gave his only son for suffering. The one who does not see God suffering, therefore, does not see his love. The tears of God are the meaning of history. Now, typical philosopher, you're thinking, what? What does he mean? My wife and I were in New Zealand. I think we were driving the kids to Burger King, and they were young. And for some reason, my wife looked over and said to me, Jeff, you know, now that we are parents, we will never be happy again. (laughs) She doesn't say much, but when she speaks. What does she mean? Well, how often... As you watch your children grow up with all the challenges ahead, do you wonder, is my child happy? And how much of your happiness is contingent on their happiness? I mean, your life can be going extremely well, but if your child is going through depression or despair or anxiety or is experiencing failure of any kind, is struggling to find his or her place in the world, is rejected by his or her peers, maybe having difficulty finding friends, you can have the house you always wanted, the car you always wanted, and plenty of money, but if your children are miserable, so are you. Do you know why? The way you know you love someone is that you suffer on their behalf. You suffer for them and with them. And if you're not suffering, you're not loving because there's no way to love without suffering. And suddenly this great philosopher realized as he looked out into the world that the only thing that made any sense in humanity was the cross of Jesus Christ. And he started to say, if you don't believe that God literally came down, this objective point in history and time, if you don't believe that he came down and suffered in history for you and will suffer with you, if you don't believe that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, then you have no proof whatsoever that God is a loving God. No proof whatsoever. Your view of God is totally subjective. 
And as I travel around the world, I keep hearing these general abstract definitions of God. And you tend to define God the way you think God ought to be. And of course, which makes no sense because the real God will contradict you at some point. He's a spirit of goodness. He's a spirit of love. And I'll say, how do you know that? What objective source do you have that you can prove to me that God loves you? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe God's just an evil tyrant and he likes watching us squirm. How do you know God is love? The gods that we've created in the 20th century are defeated by pain and suffering in our world. But the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is not defeated by the 20th century because it cannot defeat the Christian God because the God of the Bible, they can't defeat this God because since we are suffering, the only way we could know that God loves us is if he suffered in time and space with us and for us. That's why the gospel is powerful. It's the message the world is looking for. Objectively, we can know God loves us because there's a time and place that Jesus suffered on our behalf and the most recognized symbol in human history is still the cross as a reminder. And the beauty of that is number two, since Jesus walked objectively into the furnace for us, he can walk subjectively into our furnaces with us. Whatever's going on in your life and you ask the question, why is this happening? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you what the answer cannot be. It can't be because Jesus doesn't love you because he already proved he did. He already went to the cross and died for you. So you know that. So if you know that God loves you based on an objective point in the past, you can know that same God, just like a mom or dad, will walk with you through the furnaces of your life. Last weekend, I try to spend some time as best I can between services, but you know, I'm getting old. And I don't have the energy I used to have. So usually, like I told you, I usually go back somewhere and just crash until the next sermon. So I'm walking out the patio. This lady, you know, she comes running up to me. And, you know, I preach first now. So that's challenging to me too, though, because when I'm out there, I know that when I hear the music, I got to get back here because I'm up first. And I'm out walking the patio coming back from getting a coffee or whatever, and a lady grabs him by the arm. And he goes, Pastor, can you help me? Now, I've got like 60 seconds to be on this stage, but I can't look to her and say, no. I can't help you because I gotta go talk to these people about helping people. <laughs> See what I mean? You see, that's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem. So she grabs me by the arm. She's in tears. And she goes, I just need to ask a question. And I'm thinking, okay, what's your question? And I'm listening and listening. She says, Every time I come here, I feel something that's very different and I, I, I cry and I weep and I just, I don't know what's going on because when I go to my Mormon church, I'd never feel that. And I'm just thinking, God, what is this a test or something? I got like 30, I got like 30 seconds. So because you, you get used to this after a while, so I just look at her and I say, look, I'm gonna give you a 30 second answer, but would you please find me after the service so we can talk? Here's a 30 second answer. Because the Mormon church that you go to believes Jesus is nothing more than a created being. Therefore, he doesn't return to the Father and the Holy Spirit doesn't come. And what you're feeling when you come into this place is the Spirit of God in this place so that you see things you've never seen, do things you've never done, feel things you've never felt. So she looks at me and she goes, nobody told me that before. I said, great, gotta go. <laughs> and... I barely made it in time. I, I didn't make it in time, but I thought, man, what I should have done, and I, I don't know, but 
in retrospect, it would have been cool just for me to stay there, leader to Christ, and then come tell you I'm late because I just led somebody to Jesus. But then that would make me look like, you know, you bragger. So I thought, all right, what do you do? What do you do? Okay, so I noticed my friend Clive Raharui's over here that I talked about last week, and Clive's father's dying. Now, Clive is upset, but he's also at peace. Isn't it amazing how, look, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I've sat on the hospital bed of people who are dying, and I can tell you Christians die totally differently than non-Christians, because the Christian knows he's dying or she's dying, and they do cry out to God, and they do want to be healed, but ultimately, as it gets near the end, I hear the same message again and again, it's okay, I'm ready to go, I want to see Jesus. How can you hear that? Not just once, not twice, but over 35 years. The point is this. Do you really see Jesus as dying for you? Because if you do, objectively, that means that you can know what God is like, that he is loving. And that because Jesus walked into the furnace for you, no other furnace in your life can truly harm you. Right? Right? You say, well, What about these kids with cancer? Do you understand what we're saying? This is a fallen world. There is so much pain and suffering. But there's nothing that happens in your life or any other's life that God cannot recover from. And the reason is, is because the God who made life the first time can make it the second time. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, the latter life is far more glorious than the former, which is all that is to say this. When the little child dies, if he dies or she dies, it's not the end. It's the beginning of the life we're all ultimately searching for. And the one who's left behind to experience the pain, there is a prevailing presence through the power of the Spirit. That's why, my friends, if you go into the furnace without an objective God, you're going to fall apart. You will be completely destroyed. But because Jesus objectively walked into your furnace and objectively rose from the dead in history, then the son and the daughter that you've lost will be restored to an infinitely greater degree. Anything you've lost, restored to an infinitely greater degree. And that is the only way you're going to survive the furnaces of your life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The only thing the fire burned was the ropes that were binding them. This is the message for which the world desperately searches. It matters. When you travel to different places and cultures, there is a deep hunger and deep desire to understand this world. And when you give the message of one God who suffered for all, one God who walked into the furnace we deserve so that all, call, all who call on his name will be rescued from the ultimate furnace, one God who dwells within all who walk with him, one God who loves all people and therefore suffers for all, one God who does for all what they cannot do for themselves, one God who reaches out to all that all may be saved, one God who went into the furnaces for all that all may be saved by the one 
In fact, this is incredibly biblical. In Romans 5, the greatest theological treatise ever written, Paul says, therefore, just as one trespass brought condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness brought justification and life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The world, this gospel, it's not for our eyes only. It's for the world. And right now is an opportune time in history, folks. The world, for some reason, seems to be becoming more and more open. Don't believe what you hear in the Western media for a second. There are movements down in the South Pacific, all through China and Russia and Asia. Everywhere, the gospel is spreading like wildfire because people are knowing and understanding. There's only one hope for humanity. And we will not stop. We will not stop on our watch until everyone on planet earth has heard the gospel, one died that all may live. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.